You're listening to Own the Future Season 2. I'm your host, Jesse Lee. And I'm Truman Sachs. I'm excited to share the Season 2 of Own the Future pod with a co-host who was actually a guest from Season 1, Truman Sachs, CEO and co-founder Scout. First off, thanks so much for having me, Jesse, as your co-host on Season 2. Really enjoyed our conversation from Season 1. And I really can't wait for the listeners to hear our conversation with the one and only Shamath Palpatia. Some of you are probably familiar with his company, Social Capital, or have seen him on CNBC. We cover a variety of topics, uh, anything ranging from worst advice he's ever gotten, what do you look for in a founder, what's up with the VC game right now, and kind of end off with some quick hitters about music, food, and random rom-coms. And as someone who doesn't care about spoiler alerts, I'm just going to say that my favorite part of the conversation was when Chamath talked about the importance of not having any filters between yourself and the truth. And Drake. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be known the future podcast without a mention of Drake, right? How are you doing, Shamath? Great. Jesse, how are you? I'm good. Um, where are you zooming in from? Uh, the uh, dangerous streets of Palo Alto, California. My, almost as dangerous as where Truman is. Yes, sir. Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> in his bedroom at that. Shamath, I got to say, it's so weird not hearing you at 1.5 speed. <laughs> is that is that how you normally listen to a one point? I don't know what my voice sounds like at one point five. You have to <laughs> listen to the, the the dulcet tones of me at one x speed. Yeah, I, it'll take me a little getting used to, but it's, it's just so funny. Truman's trying to get us to release these at like a one point five speed as the default. I have a theory that everyone sounds smarter on one point five speed instantly. Either that, or they are they all sound like they're on Adderall. It must be one of the other. <laughs> That's that's both true for Truman. Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll start with an easy question, but one that everybody wants to know. So when will Bitcoin hit hundred thousand dollars? If you can predict a month and a year, twenty twenty three. Oh, June ish. So about two years from now. That's the latest answer we've gotten. Um, follow up. Okay. So now we're kind of getting into a little bit uh, more. But um, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Wow, the worst piece of advice. Um, that's a hard one. Um, you know, I get I get like a lot of opinions all the time, and a lot of it just goes in one year and out the other. So it's very hard to tell you something that really stuck that I implemented, and I was like, God, that was stupid. So I, I don't really have a good answer for that one, to be honest with you. Okay. I, I remember listening to one of your podcasts. I think it was from a few years ago um, or an interview, and you were kind of talking about how you like to. Um, it reminds me of the gospel quote of. Uh, good art, good artists borrow, great artists steal, um, and how all of us kind of like draw inspiration from a variety of sources, and uh, those who succeed are those who copy well. So I'm curious if there's been someone that you've taken taken inspiration from that you um, were surprised by that you, you never thought you would have actually uh, implemented something from uh, someone like that. Well, I mean, I, I I've learned a lot from like some of the most non-obvious people in my life. Um, I've I've eventually met like most of the people that I looked up to. And they were always the most disappointing because in my mind, they were so much more grandiose. And in reality, they're like everybody else, which is a normal person. But there are, there are certain people that um, I interact with who have continued to kind of like uh, inspire me. There's a person that works here at our house. And, you know, she reminds me of my mom in many ways. She has raised three kids. She's, you know, principal breadwinner. She's constantly trying to learn and upgrade her skills. Um, you know, sometimes I've walked in where, you know, she like does the, the laundry and she's studying while like the, the laundry machine is going. I just think it's incredible. And then, you know, as a result of that, this year, my partner and I basically decided to uh, tell her that like, look, 
you know, we could give you raises and we could debate about this or that, or um, we're just going to pay for your kids to go to college. And, uh, uh, but it's because I was, I've, I just find people like that really inspiring. And I, and I like to copy that work ethic. I mean, look, if I had to boil down what works for me, it's kind of being a grinder and being in the engine room, I call it, you know, the more I'm in the engine room, the better I am. Uh, and so that's, that's like a person that I've learned a ton from. On speaking of learning though, and I, I think I caught something you said before on how you maybe taken the last 10 years really to learn and then kind of get to the point of what you're about to do now and what you're doing with social capital. Is there one advice that you would have given yourself 10 years ago? You know, I didn't really, <clears throat> I was always looking for some grand insight. And if somebody could have told me that's an illusion and that's a narrative fallacy that winners use to describe something in a heroic terms, that's very non-heroic. So, you know, when you hear a great founder talk about the journey of their company, it sounds so perfect. And it sounds like there were these immense moments of just breakthrough insight. And seeing enough companies get built and seeing it really honestly, I think that that's a huge lie. And so if somebody could have told me, don't look for the great idea, look for the thing that you can iterate on, the thing that keeps you engaged, that would have been really helpful for me because my biggest failures were the ones where I took grandiose bets. And instead, the biggest successes were the ones where I had modest ambitions, but I kept iterating and working and they became really big. That's an interesting insight because I think even for founders and startups, especially like this is just my personal opinion, but too many people look for like white spaces and they come up with theories and thesis and then take the business school approach, right? Of putting together, for, you know, yep. the roadmap. But oftentimes, yeah, like I see you shaking. It's literally more about like, what insight do you ha- have? What advantages do you have? And can you build on that? You know? And, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, to build on what you're saying, it's really about product market fit, which you can get in two ways. Number one is you can ask a lot of people and then build them what they're telling you. Or number two is you can build something you yourself need that then other people can very quickly also, you know, uh, tell you at the same time. That's it. And so, you know, to your point, if you come up with some crazy whiz bang thing that's going to take three and a half years to build, forget about it. You're much better off trying something super, super simple, getting it out there and, and letting people vote with their money, because that is the best way of figuring out whether something is real or not. The minute that they're giving you a precious resource that they are grinding to get themselves, time or money, that's the only way you know that something works. So building on top of that, like when you go and make an investment in a founder, um, how important is like a college or business school degree? I'm assuming I know the answer, but um, how important is the college or business school degree like when considering um, that investment, right? Because I think the, the modern day school or college kind of like for the betterment or not, trains the uh, young minds to kind of think in these framework ways. And I'm kind of curious if that kind of plays a factor into the type of um, company that they're trying to build and how you kind of think about your investment. Look, it, it doesn't qualify anybody. And early on when I was more insecure, I would disqualify people who were too overly educated. Um, I've learned to stop doing that as well. So what I would say today in a more mature frame is it neither qualifies nor disqualifies. So whenever I meet a founder for the first time, I'm much more curious about their family life. I like to ask, how did you grow up? What did your parents do? Do you have siblings? Where did you grow up? What was your experiences like in high school? And, and I'm just trying to get, and I'm building in my mind, a psychological profile of that individual. 
And what I'm trying to figure out is, are they a learner? Are they curious? Are they resilient? How do they frame things? You know, do they contextualize? Can they depersonalize? Sometimes the best entrepreneurs have those skills innately. And other times, good entrepreneurs to get great need to get coached on those kinds of things. None of those things are taught in school. So there's no point worrying too much about it. I think what you're really trying to figure out is how many filters have been inserted between you and the truth. And you want to optimize when you're picking entrepreneurs for the people with the fewest filters between themselves and the truth. And sometimes it is true that certain ways of being educated or spending too much time in certain things just insert too many filters because it's a bunch of false signaling that you've bought into. So it just takes too much time to unwind that stuff sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think, Truman, to your point, right? Because what Shamath said rings too, because some people, right, if they're truly trying to learn and that's why they continue their education and have multiple skill sets out of that, like, that's great. But if you're somebody who's like, oh, I want to check off the list so that I have an amazing LinkedIn or a Clubhouse profile, then it's right. That's probably not the right approach, you know? So Truman's asking because he literally dropped out of whatever freshman year (laughs) would have been, you know, to to start his company. But I think, yeah, to Chamath's point, like I wouldn't necessarily also disqualify or disregard someone who has a great school background anymore because you just don't know know, the inside. You just don't know. I mean, like, look, you could have, you could have dropped out of school and have a lot of filters between you and the truth as well. Definitely. But that, that is the key thing. There is the truth, there is you, and there's measuring the distance. And that measurement is entirely a function of how you grew up, in my experience. So for the listeners, like obviously I'm I'm pretty familiar and we had a combo about social capital, but for sort of future entrepreneurs and the next gen, do you mind explaining to us what social capital is? Look, we're an organization of people whose mission is to even the starting line. And so what that means is that if you go back to what we said before, the greatest need over the next 20 or 30 years are solutions to two kinds of problems. One are problems of inequality, and the second are problems of climate change. Um, And the reason is that people want to have an even shot. Now, why does everybody want to have an even starting line? Well, 50 years ago, you didn't have access to Google. You didn't know the truth, right? You could be told some version of the truth by someone who controlled the media, what you read, what you listened to, what you saw on TV. And so your worldview was shaped by other people. Now more than ever, you are your own direct marketer, broadcaster, you know, chief revenue officer. You're your own everything, right? And you get on Google and within eight seconds, you know the truth. You can get to the ground truth of everything. And so if you have all the info, then the idea that you can't take advantage of it is extremely frustrating, right? And so I think what people want is an even starting line. They want to know that they can go and have a shot, start a Shopify store, you know, be an influencer on TikTok if that's what they want to do, you know, sell something on basic space, whatever it is, they want to be unimpeded. Now, how can I help? Well, if you are unlucky enough to grow up in a place that could be subsumed by water in the next 15 or 20 years, somebody's going to have to solve that problem. You know, if or genetically, you get the wrong roll of the dice, and all of a sudden you wake up and you have stage two lung cancer because genetically you were just predisposed to something, you're fucked, right? And you're going to go bankrupt in America dealing with that problem. So we need to find a way of fixing these things using technology. I think that you can make a lot of money doing it, which is great. But the byproduct of it is that you can marry 
all this knowledge that people have now with opportunity. And then, you know, I think amazing things can happen. That's what, that's what we do every day. We try to find ways of solving these problems. And in terms of just on the, the application of that for say like founders and again, young entrepreneurs listening though, right? Cause most people may see you, right? Regarding SPACs and, and sort of larger size deal flow, things like things of that nature. Any advice to then someone like Truman and others, right? Who, who wanna reach you or have some sort of affiliation with social capital ecosystem. What do you recommend then? We're, uh, you know, I started as an early stage investor. And I spent my whole life working at startups and then, you know, working at bigger companies that I helped or startups that became very big companies. And then now here I am. And, you know, what I've always changed, Jesse, is the how, right? Meaning like for a while, I thought early stage investing was the only way. Then I did a bunch of public market investing for a while. Then I did some SPAT. But the reality is that uh, I need to very much be open for business. So we are going to reintroduce early stage investing. Um, we're going to have the ability for people to, um, you know, interact with us, get our support from a fifty thousand dollar check all the way to five billion dollar check. Um, and uh, and yeah, you'll hear about that probably in the next three or four months when we kind of like really open it up. But um, uh, there'll be ways. The one thing that I wanted to make sure we asked was right your most recent pod into all in you and the besties talked about right sort of what's happening in the VC world, right? And something you and I've talked about previously too. So like, I mean, what's your just macro prediction, what's happening, right? Because there's just a lot of, there's a lot of different ways to raise capital now, cheap capital. It's hard to find the right VC. That's one of the things you guys talked about. Truman and I are actively talking to certain people and it's always like, how do you choose as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, there's like little, little the amount that distinguishes between early stage of venture like capital firms, or I feel like the, the distinguishing factors has kind of decreased over the amount of years as like saturation has increased. So I guess like what me and Jesse are also just trying to zone in on is how, yeah, what, 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 how do you see this playing out over the years with so much competition and so much saturation in such a, I guess, a limited front, you know? Um, we are learning that the trade-off that you make in building a company was somewhat false. So what do I mean by that? You know, if you have an idea for a business, the most important thing that you need are customers, whether those are consumers or other businesses, right? But then the second most important thing that you needed was validation. And you would need to go for somebody else to say, yeah, this kid's popular. Why? Because it was presumed that that was the only way that you could attract other people to work for you, you know, to maybe get more customers, to get more users. And all of that actually turns out to be a lie. The second thing is, People used to think that there were these, you know, ghosts in the machine that will be whispering the answer to you. And that's how, you know, we built Facebook or Google or whatever. And it turns out that that's a lie. I helped build one of these companies. You know how many times I talked to our venture capital investors? Negative one fucking time. I talked to them in board meetings. And then it was like, okay, thank you. And God bless. And I'll see you in four months. Now leave me alone. So that's another lie that's been exposed, which is that, you know, they don't do anything. In fact, by design, in the best companies, they run themselves. Yeah. So if you put all these things together, what you realize is like venture capital has been about basically like a, it's like a smash and grab, you know? It's like you get in there and you get, you get a huge ownership of these companies from founders and it probably was unnecessary. And the trade-off wasn't fair and balanced. So what I think is happening is you need signaling from partners but partners now mean other people in the ecosystem. You need signaling from customers, 
people are more prone to work for you because they make their own decisions, right? And then the cost of capital is becoming much cheaper because there's all these ways to grow non-dilutively. So for founders, it's the best time ever. You own more of the business. You know, you can attract great people to work for you by having your own direct channel on places like Twitter and other places. So I think it's a whole brand new world. It's amazing. The brands of venture don't matter anymore. Yeah, and I think on a on a macro scale or level too, right? I think individuals just matter more than ever, right? Whether it's from the founder, the influencer to the brand, to the business, to even from the investor side, right? Like we talked about this before, it's, it's the person that's investing. It's not necessarily the brand or people around. Yeah. How, how do you think about after, after death, like where do you want your capital distributed? I don't care. <laughs> so you, have, you haven't thought about it. You haven't thought about it. Doesn't matter. I, I, ideally, ideally, what would happen is that you could reset it so that it's like a jackpot that waits for some other player in the grand simulation to get. <laughs> Reinvest <laughs> into the world. Yeah. Right. So one, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people are going to want to know, you have a big prediction for maybe something that no one's really talked about. You know, we purposely didn't bring up NFTs because it's been talked about numerous times everywhere, including ourselves. Any prediction that you would make? I'm pretty sure that we, uh, by mid-decade, we'll be able to take a blood test and get a completely personalized head-to-toe solution for human optimization. So you take a blood test and you download an app and all of a sudden it'll be like a completely personalized fitness regimen, mental health regimen, food will get delivered to you, health tests are scheduled for you, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. I also think by mid-decade, you'll have a physical printer. Everybody will have a physical printer inside their house that will make whatever you want. It could be wine or booze or organic home cleaner or orange juice. In the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. Mid-decade. Well, a couple of quick personal stuff, just because I think you know, a lot of us might be curious, people listening to. What's on your playlist? Favorite music, artists? Because that's something I've never heard you talk about. What do you listen to? Yeah, I, I listen to an enormous amount of hip hop and an enormous amount of folk. Those are the two. It's the craziest <laughs> thing. Wow. Like head in the heart and like, you know, like, oh, like stuff like that. Uh, or, you know, like, um, but hip hop. And then uh, what I've been re- recently re-listening to over and over again, which is what I think is one of the most absolutely ridiculous albums of like, the last 20 years is Take care. which is this uh, album by Drake. Like, I think it was his second album. Yeah, of course. It is the most ridiculous thing, like brooding, dark, big, incredible. Every song, incredible. Uh, and he's Canadian. I know, yeah. <laughs> Fellow Canadian. Fellow Canadian. What about TV shows or film? Uh, I recently just finished watching The Night Manager on Amazon. That was really good. I'm now watching uh, Gamora on HBO Max. And then movie-wise, uh, honestly, dude, Nat makes me watch rom-coms. I fucking watch one rom-com a week. I brutal. Funny, yeah. I don't really watch movies either, but you're probably right. It's, it's on the screen for the Oh, partner. you know, another incredible series that I watched is uh, Never Have I Ever by Mindy Kaling on Netflix. Yeah. Incredible. That is an incredible series. I've only yeah, read about it. That's a good one. Last but not least, this is for Truman, who hasn't ventured out much outside of LA the last year. Favorite restaurant, place to eat, where you would do sign a deal, LA or San Francisco? You know, honestly, in San Francisco, I would say you'd go to my house because I think my chef is the best in the world. 
in LA, you know, I like super clean, simple food, like not pretentious. So I probably just go to Matsuhisa. That's a good spot. Classic. Well, thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy. Yeah, Truman. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourselves. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Truman.